Okay, let's take our Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 8. We've already heard so much about the Lord that I don't want to uh, overdo it, but we want to study His Word this morning, so we pray the Lord will give us direction here. I want to talk real simply this morning about some spiritual principles that the Lord gives us in this text here in Acts chapter 8 <clears throat> that will help us in the area that probably intimidates most of us the most. This is a familiar passage. You've probably studied it before. It's about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and um, that they have this meeting arranged by the Holy Spirit in the middle of the Gaza Desert. It highlights opportunities for us about how the Lord uses us to talk about Christ. And usually when we study this text, we have a big message about witnessing and then everybody's opinion comes out on which witnessing method is the best. Should we form friendships, or should we witness through the church, or, or should we uh, find common ground with people, or should we confront them, should we get out on the streets and talk? I don't, I don't want to talk about that this morning. This, this passage to me is less about witnessing and even less about technique than it is about being stirred to action, as Shetty just really talked about, um, about having an understanding of just how effectively God wants to use us. Now, you remember from last week's study that we saw the aftermath of Stephen's murder, and we saw Saul rise up and begin the persecution of the church. Church starts to scatter. Uh, Philip and others go into Samaria, and we see um, uh, the ministry expanding there. As Saul tries to stop the gospel and unravel the church, and in two chapters his life's about to be dramatically changed. But as Saul does that, the church stands steady. And the believers, as they spread out, continue to speak the gospel. And they see lives changed. And they get more determined to preach about Christ and to share the good news. And lives get changed and lives get changed. But there's still this overriding threat, this this tension that's there because of the persecution that's out there. So it's fascinating to see what happens next. Let's start in chapter 8, verse 25. Let's just read one verse for a moment. It says, So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now notice in the text that they started to go back to the very place that they had been scattered from. They started to go back to the place where the persecution was rampant. You would think that, that maybe they'd wait a while, that maybe they'd let things cool off a little bit, that the first wave of attack and the first wave of persecution, uh, that, that at some point that wave would subside a little bit and then they could go back and kind of work their way back in when the spiritual momentum changed back. There's still a very strong threat on their lives. There's certainly the threat of jail, but the Holy Spirit gives them a holy boldness. And they begin to return. And the reason that they have this boldness is listed right there in the verse. And I want to just make sure we get this before we proceed to the rest of the text, because it's very, very important. It says that they solemnly testified and they spoke the word of God. Now, as believers, if we could just get those two things, if those two things would become consistent and prioritized in our life, our ministry as individuals and as a church would be more powerful than we can imagine. They testified 
and they spoke the word of God. See, the first part of the message was personal. The first part of the message was how God had moved in them and convicted them and transformed them through Christ's sacrifice. And I want you to see that that adjective, because that adjective right before that word testify is very important. The Holy Spirit doesn't put it in there accidentally. He puts it there intentionally. He says they solemnly testified. In other words, they were not flippant. They weren't casual. They weren't calloused. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, we'll talk about it. It, it, it wasn't uh, with an attitude of kind of arrogance and, and just, just nothing that was very really important. They solemnly testified to it. Thinking as I was studying, can you imagine the early church remembering Christ on the cross and remembering the meetings they had on the shore after the resurrection and remembering the movement of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1 and how he begins to move in their midst and all the, all the people that are saved and the threats and opposition, but the power of the gospel. Can you imagine them remembering all that and then saying, we need to be glib about it. We need to be slick in our approach. See, if there are two things I think that we have to constantly guard against that the church has tended to to do poorly, it's that we have treated the Lord too casually. You can never treat God too casually. And that's always a risk as we move into into a time where, where things have shifted and changed. We have to be careful that we don't lose our sense of reverence for God. And then along with that, we have to be careful that we don't make holiness and sanctification debatable. Holiness in the life of a believer, sanctification, being set apart, is not a debatable issue. And see, the second rests on the first. If the Lord is minimized in our mind, if we make him anything less than the righteous God that he is, the creator and the Lord and the one who is over all things and the judge and the savior and the king and everything else we can say about God. If, if, if we're not in awe and reverence of that, then it's going to dramatically change how we live. Because if we're not in fear of God, then the, the, the uh, sense of sin is going to be minimized. As we lose reverence for God, we lose our fear of sin. As we lose reverence for God, we begin to say, no big deal, I'll pray, God will forgive it, we'll move on, happy, happy, happy. The believers testified about how Christ had changed their lives, and then they spoke the word of God. Why? Because the word of God is the central source for truth. It's what the Spirit uses to convict and teach and encourage us. And there is no gospel without the word of God. You cannot present the gospel without having it completely focused on the word. The church has become so focused on on technique and trying to fit in with society that, that we have lost our sense of the word of God. We're trying to, to convince people to come to church, but, but in doing that, it, it marginalizes the word of God, and we have to, to, to lessen its influence so that we don't offend anybody. And then we start to focus on how we get people rather than the power of the Word of God. Uh, if we want to put it more, more succinctly and more directly, and maybe I'll offend somebody here, but that's okay. Can you imagine the early church spending meeting time worried about what kind of coffee they were going to serve rather than on how they were going to defend the gospel? 
The word of God has to be the foundation. Everything has to be defined by it. And we can't selectively choose what we like and what we think will work and toss out the rest. We can talk about the movement of the Holy Spirit and about His leading and powerful ways that He works. But it's, if it's not completely in line with what the Word of God tells us, then it has to be discounted. We can talk about worship style, as we saw in that video at the start. It, it doesn't matter if it's dishonoring to God. At that point, it's not authentic. Nothing is authentic in Christianity unless the Bible verifies it. So Philip and the others, look at their focus. They solemnly testify, and they speak the Word of God. And they have a Spirit-empowered ministry that's changing lives. But right in the middle of that, with that foundation, God changes Philip's course. And he separates him out. We're familiar with it, but let's read it again, starting in verse 26. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up, go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered, verse 34, to Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and he preached throughout Excuse me. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Now, the Spirit speaks to Philip, and he takes him in a different direction from Samaria to Jerusalem to the road to Gaza. Not what he expected, not what he planned, not what anybody else was doing, only what the Spirit had called him to do. And as I studied that, it raised the question, what happens when the Lord takes us on a different path than everybody else? How do we respond? Shetty's dealing with something right now that none of us is dealing with. How does she respond? Does she react with fear or resentment or anger or bitterness or confusion or, or resistance? What's the response? When the Lord pulls us away from the comfort that we talked about last week and he puts us in a situation that is fluid and that is undefined and is uncertain, what do we do in response? Do we serve the Lord with the same determination when we just have the prompting of the Holy Spirit as we do when everything's laid out? See, all of a sudden, Philip doesn't have the fellowship with the others. 
He doesn't have the safety in numbers at a time when there was persecution going on. He doesn't have clear direction on why he's going to the desert. And to make matters worse, there's all kinds of danger in the desert. This, this is not a protected or safe place that he's going into. And it's not a short trip either. Scholars have speculated on the amount of, of distance that he walked. Some people say it might have been as many as 60 miles from him from in Samaria all the way down to the road to Gaza. Maybe walking 60 miles, not something you're going to do in a couple hours. If you guys have that slide for a second, if you'd put that up, I want you to see uh, the path that was taken here. You can see Jerusalem, hopefully, on the map. Uh, you see where that is, up in the, where the white and the yellow meet. If you go down to where it says Gaza, that's the road down to Gaza. If you'd put up the next slide, this is part of the road to Gaza. You see some bikers there. They did not exist at the time of Philip and the eunuch. But just to give you perspective, you don't see any cities. You don't see any trees. You don't see anything. If you'd put the next slide up, you can see just how barren this is. He's going to be traveling at night. He's going to be traveling without anybody else. There's the threat of thieves that are wandering around and, and pillaging and attacking people. He doesn't have any provisions. God hasn't allowed him to go back home and pack supplies and get a suitcase and an umbrella to guard him from the sun. He doesn't have any provisions with him at this point. Imagine today God saying, walk down to downtown Chicago. But as you walk down to downtown Chicago, you don't have the oasis to stop at for a Starbucks. And you don't have a hotel to stop in when night falls. You just walk and it looks like that. And God doesn't tell you why. He doesn't tell you how far you're going to walk. He doesn't tell you what the purpose is. He just says, start walking. It's desolate and barren and lonely. There's no protection. And you're just on your own. But out of this result, out of, out of what Philip is going to do, there are going to be tremendous results. Philip's going to be used of the Lord, and a man's life is going to be changed, and he's going to get saved, and the gospel's going to go back to very influential people in Ethiopia. There's nothing bad about what happens as a result of this. But before it happens, and for it to happen, Philip has to be willing to go. Spirit doesn't carry him there like he will in verses 39 to 40. He just says, go toward Gaza. There's no communication. There's, there's no sense of anything other than just go. See, sometimes the Lord puts us in a situation where there's no promise of immediate answers. And the setting into which we're walking to offers little in the way of refreshing and comfort. Many of you have been through that in the last year. Some of you are going through it right now. And we know the Lord will pull us through and we're confident that he's faithful and that there will be a great result. But honestly, as we stare at that road laying out before us, we're not quite sure what to think or feel. And yet, 21 verses before, the same situation had happened with Philip when Saul starts attacking the church and Philip takes off for Samaria. In both cases... He's not threatened by the difficulty or by the uncertainty. He just sees it as an opening for fresh ministry. And that's an important truth that will help us in times of uncertainty and change. Because whenever we're staring at an unclear future, we can look back and see the faithfulness of God as he's worked in the past. Every one of us is here this morning 
because God has led us. Even if you're resistant against the Lord this morning, even if you don't want to have anything to do with the Lord and you're not even sure why you're here, God has led you. He has moved in your life. He has guided you. He's protected you. You have not died yet. He has worked in a way to get you to this point. And he has plans for every one of us. He wants to move in our lives. And we have to, as we face the uncertainty of that, look back and say, he's been faithful. So instead of being intimidated by the unknown, which if we have a propensity for for being in control and for situations being managed, that that can really stun our faith by, by moving into the unknown. Instead of being shaken by that, we need to be reassured by his sovereign provision and we need to find courage in his unscrutable plan. We need to trust that God is faithful. We need to know that he will work. And here's what gives us full confidence. We have the exact same resources that Philip had. We have the power of the gospel as we hold the Bible in our hands. Actually, we have more than him because he didn't have one of these. We have the past experiences where we've seen people's lives get changed by the word of God, including our own. We have a specific calling from the Lord himself. So we have to go forward with the same commitment and the same adaptability as Philip has. And here's what's wonderful about Acts 8. Look back at the text. It provides an incredible reassurance that God's leading and his direction and his timing is perfect. The desert is desolate. Philip's on his own. We don't know whether it's nighttime or daytime. But he just happens to meet this man who just happens to be reading Isaiah just as he's coming closer. And he just happens to wish that somebody would explain it to him. And he just happens to find someone that can actually explain it to him because he knows the one who it's talking about. That's coincidence, right? Just just kismet, just just stuff that, just, just an intersection of events that nobody had any control over. No, God orchestrated it. Philip walks dozens of miles, almost certainly thinking, Lord, where am I going and why? Come on, that had to cross his mind, right? What, what am I doing, Lord? I was just in Samaria. If somebody finds me out here, I'm dead. I, 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 don't have any, I don't have any supplies. I have nothing to eat. What am, I, what am I doing? Come on, he's human. He has to think those things. And as he walks mile after mile in the sun, and then the sun sets, and it's dark and cold and desolate, and he hears sounds and animals, and he doesn't know what's going on. As he's walking down there, All of a sudden, he meets this man. And as the conversation begins, oh, he says to himself, Lord, now I get it. You're so wonderful. You had me come down here to meet this man. Now, as we look at that, there are a couple very simple spiritual truths the Lord teaches us. I want to encourage you to write these down and think through these throughout the week. These relate to how we can fulfill the ministry that God has called us to. We'll go through one just for a couple minutes on each. First one's in verse 27. Verse 27 reminds us that the scope of influence that comes from our testimony and speaking the word is limitless. The scope of influence that you and I have as we share our faith, 
as we talk about how God's changed us, and as we speak the word of God, the, the ability to influence lives is absolutely unlimited. We saw back at the start of chapter 8 that Philip was the first one who's recorded by the Holy Spirit to go out and start to evangelize outside of Jerusalem. Verse 5 says that he went to Samaria and proclaimed Christ. Verse 6, that the crowds listened to him, that he started to do miracles, that, that, that there was physical and spiritual restoration to many people, and, and that the end result of that was an abundance of joy. The mark of trust in God's grace is an abundance of joy. This is not just happiness that people are getting healed. This is, this is, this is the, the, the joy, the, the, the feeling, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. It's such a peace and such a confidence and such a complete sense of contentment in God. That's what's happening here because God's grace is great. And faith starts to spread out of Samaria just as it will when this man goes back to Ethiopia and North Africa starts to hear about Christ, Philip would never see those lives be impacted by his testimony. But he knew that the Lord had established the path. We need to understand that God wants to use us in unique ways, in settings that we're in. Some of you will be in settings this week that I will never get to. I will have conversations this week that you would never have. That doesn't make one of us better than the other. It just means that God puts us in places where we can talk about Him. And when we submit to His leading and respond by ministering to people, He will use us in ways that we cannot imagine. And sometimes that's just planting the seed, putting the truth in people's hearts. We may never see it germinate. We may never see it grow. We may never meet them again. But that work of tilling the ground and getting the seed in there eventually will be effective as they go through the process and God works in their life. And eventually they meet someone that says, I need to talk to you about praying to receive Jesus Christ. Or there may be times when we're just the facilitator, where we walk somebody through a crisis, or we speak the truth in love, even though it's difficult, or we pray for them so that they'll know the mercy of God. We may not have planted the seed, and we may not see the results, but that part's important. Or or sometimes God calls us to be the one where when that person finally says, I'm giving my life to Christ, we're, we're the one who says, let me pray with you. Or maybe we disciple them in the new faith. Or maybe we, we encourage them and train them. Or maybe we take them into a deeper level of trust. Or, or whatever the case may be. We rarely cover all the bases. I can't remember the times in my life where I led somebody to the Lord and took them all the way through to maturity. Life doesn't work like that. So mostly there are times when God says, now, here's where I need you. And as Christians, I believe we need to be less of a specialist and more of a generalist. You know what I mean by that? Not just, well, I'm always the one that's going to evangelize. Or I'm always the one that's going to disciple. That's my thing. I'm just a discipler, and and that means that God's gifted me to disciple, and I don't have to evangelize. Or or God's not really made me a prayer warrior, but but I I can... be there when somebody needs to be held or somebody needs to be encouraged or, or whatever the case may be. Listen, that's wonderful that God's gifted us in certain ways, but that doesn't exempt us from other things. Sometimes we need to say, do you know Jesus Christ? And sometimes we need to say, I'll just hug you and pray for you because you're hurting right now. And other times we need to say, let me help you learn about the Lord and, and mature in your faith. 
we need to be adaptable and willing to fill any of those situations because when we do that, the influence is limitless. Second, would you see in verse 29 that when the Spirit prompts us, we should jump at the opportunity to be used in a fresh way. We've learned a lot about the Holy Spirit throughout these studies. When the Spirit prompts us, we need to jump at the chance. I want you to notice in the text in verse 29 that Philip ran to the chariot. Some people speculate even that, that the chariot was moving and that Philip had to run to catch up to us. He's just walked dozens of miles in the heat and now he's running? He has absolutely no idea who this guy is. He has absolutely no idea what he's going to think when a stranger comes running to him in the desert. He has no idea if this guy is going to be open to spiritual things until he gets close by and hears him reading Isaiah. Now verse 27, look back, tells us that this man was the minister of finance. In other words, he's the CFO of Ethiopia. He controls the gold. He's the one who knows all the money that's in the treasury. And he's deeply trusted by Candace, who is the queen of Ethiopia. So, so he's prominent. He's important. He's well-known. He's trusted. And yet, something's missing. He's traveled hundreds of miles to come to Jerusalem and to worship. We don't know what he was worshiping because the Ethiopians did not believe in Judaism. We don't know why he would have come to Jerusalem to worship. We have to sense that there's some kind of confusion and lack of comprehension because we see that even as he reads Isaiah. Maybe while he was in Jerusalem, he had heard that about Jesus because it's not that far removed from the resurrection. But he doesn't get the connection as he reads Isaiah that it's talking about Jesus. Many people that we're going to meet this week are in that exact same situation. They honestly don't know what to believe. They don't know what they believe. They have a basic understanding of God, but not to the full extent that Scripture lays out. They've heard about Jesus. They formulated some kind of opinion about Him. They've probably heard about the cross, but they don't really understand it or believe it. They need somebody to come along and explain it to them, and they need that someone to be someone whose own life has been changed by the gospel. Because you're going to meet somebody this week that fits that description. And they need to hear from you and from me. God has changed my life through Christ. I am different than I used to be. And God is working in my life in powerful ways. And you can have the same confidence that God's given me. Now, why don't we step up in those situations? Well, the most common reason is that we don't feel like we can explain it well enough. And I've heard that, and I've probably used it myself, but here's where I got convicted this week. If you look at the text, the Holy Spirit doesn't really give us that latitude. Philip had been saved less than a year, probably less than three months. He's away from all his support. He doesn't have a Bible. He doesn't have a cell phone to pull up the Bible. The Spirit tells him to go near the chariot and stay near it. 
He has no idea who this guy was. He has no idea what he's going to find. He has no idea what to say. He probably assumes it's going to be a spiritual conversation because the Lord led him all the way down to the desert to talk to this guy. But he doesn't know until he hears the mean man reading Isaiah out loud where he's going to start. So why is he so confident? Why does he run over to the chariot? Well, very simply, it's because he knew the word of God. And because his heart and mind were listening to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. This is the third truth. I want you to see it in verse 30. The third truth is we have to know the word to be ready to explain the word. We have to know the word to be ready to explain the word. Our default tendency is to be hesitant to talk to people about Christ. And it's safe to assume that the leading reason for that lack of personal evangelism is a lack of confidence in being able to explain it. Now, the irony of this is that the people that we need to talk to are in the same situation that they don't understand the word. They need somebody to guide them. So we, church, we, believer, need to be students of the word. We need to know how to study it. We need to know how to understand it. We need to know how to apply it, and we need to know how to explain it to others. Next week, we're going to announce some resources for you of new initiatives that we're going to have to take us to deeper studies of God's Word. But resources or no resources, verse 31, look at it for a second. And he said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. That verse right there is the motivation to fill the Great Commission because he reads and it's clear that though this is a prophecy about Jesus, he doesn't understand it. And Philip, as he approaches, sees this man like Jesus saw the crowds as he got out of the boat and the crowds ran up and it said Jesus was filled with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We have to see people not critically, not judgmentally, not with an attitude, not how could you believe that or not believe that, not why don't you ever come to church, not any of that. We have to see people with compassion and say they just are sheep without a shepherd. They just need to understand the word of God. For Philip, this is a slam dunk because it was ingrained in his heart and mind. But our question is, if we're in this same situation in February of 2012, can we explain it and draw someone to trust in Christ? This is Isaiah 53. It's a key passage in Scripture about the prophecy about Jesus Christ and His role to come as both Messiah to the Jews and Savior to the Gentiles and the approach that He take as the perfect sacrificial lamb who would be put to death for our sins. It challenged the Romans' power. It contradicted the Gentiles' view of multiple gods. It went against the Greek concept that salvation came through knowledge. It wasn't what the Jews wanted because they wanted a warrior king who would solve everything and not call them to change. Philip doesn't address all of that, I don't believe. He just talks about Christ. Oh, let me tell you about this guy. It's not, Isaiah's not talking about himself. He's talking about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the one that saved me. Let me tell you about the one that healed people. We have to know the word to explain the word. Can you talk to someone about sin? 
Can you talk about substitution? Can you tell them about the sacrifice of Christ? Can you tell them what it means to be atoned, paid for by His blood? Can can you lead someone to Christ? I'm not saying this to put a guilt trip on us. I'm saying this is this is what we need to know. And we better get ready quick. Because once we're there, there's another component. Look at verse 29. The Spirit says to Philip, go up and join him. In other words, something's about to happen, Philip. Come on, you better be ready now. I led you all the way down here. Now it's time to get to work. That's an important thought because we're usually inclined to hold back a bit and assess the situation. And as we're doing that, we kind of hope that someone with the gift of evangelism will come along and just kind of step in, right? Anybody ever thought that one? Well, Lord, I know you're prompting me to talk to this person, and I know I should know enough, but I'm a little bit insecure. And Lord, oh God, if you would just send someone who has that gift of evangelism to come along like Philip in the desert to come and step in for me, and I'll be there praying as he leads that person to Christ. Philip looked up and down the road. Nobody's coming. Peter and John aren't hiding behind a bush, just waiting. It's him. The road's desolate, and there's a man sitting there in a chariot. Verse 29, the Spirit says, go near. And here's what I love. Philip runs toward him. What did that communicate to the man when he saw Philip running up? Out of nowhere, he comes sprinting up and he's out of breath and he says, do you understand what you're reading? What a first question. Not, you have any water? I'm out here alone. Can I sit for a couple minutes? I've walked like 40 miles. I'm so tired. You got any food? Some matzah? Something. Some locks? I don't know. I'm hungry. First question. After all the walk, he runs up and says, do you know what you're reading? Sometimes it's just asking the right question. We went on a mission trip in 1992 to England. I took 31 singles to England. I said, here's what our trip's going to be. I'll give you two days to sightsee, and then we're going to go out every day for eight hours on the streets, and we're going to ask people about the Lord. They went out with a survey, and the first question on the survey was, what do you believe about God? Now, England's a very fascinating place because it's kind of a crossroad of cultures. We met people from, I think, 31 different countries. Talked to over 400 people in a week. First question is, what do you believe about God? You wouldn't believe how that one question will get people talking. Sometimes it's just asking the right question. And look, let me close with this because my time's done. Fourth thought, when we're willing to talk about Christ, this is at the end of verse uh, 31. When we're willing to talk about Christ, people will talk back. When we're willing to talk about Christ, people will talk back. People are more willing to engage than we think, and they'll open up when we start asking questions. Everybody loves talking about themselves. If you want to be considered a great conversationalist 
and a great listener, learn to ask questions. You ever been at one of those dinners where you're sitting across from somebody and they don't ask any questions? And you're like, all right, what can I ask? What's your favorite color? I don't know. I'm out of questions. What kind of dog do you have? I, we just the, the best way to be a good conversationalist, the best way to initiate conversation with somebody about the Lord is just to start asking questions. And when we do that, we will not believe how much people will open up. Now, we as Christians, I think, tend to be a little bit pessimistic that the world is going downhill and that society's spiraling down and we're discouraged and we're kind of hopeful that politicians will maybe change it, but we know that's not really real. The, the fact is, when we testify about the work of God in our lives and we speak the word of God, that will provide the biggest spiritual change in our country more than anything else. And we have to resist getting caught in the second layer of pessimism that that people are more resistant than ever against biblical Christianity and and they're intolerant and they view us as weird and and that, that there's cultural decay and there's moral pluralism and the church is not set up for the word of God and the church is being compatible with culture and all those things. We can get all caught up in that rather than just saying we're going to talk about the Lord. And when we talk about the Lord, people will respond. They will be more open than we imagine. They've looked at every other option. They've looked at every other way that they can find peace and happiness and comfort in their life. If you want to look at an example of this, Whitney Houston. She was raised in the church. And yet she sought every other avenue for satisfaction and found nothing. People have looked at the options. That's why they're discouraged. That's why everybody's pessimistic because they've looked at all the options and everything comes up short. And then we come wandering along. Do you know what you're reading? Can I tell you what that's about? Can I tell you about how God has moved in my life in ways I never would have expected? If you knew me five years ago, you wouldn't recognize me. There's hope. There's confidence. There's assurance. The Spirit prompts. The Word convicts. The disciple explains. God transforms. When the Spirit prompts you, you want to have the Word of God hidden in your heart, not only that we might not sit against Him, but so we can explain. And where we don't have the words, the Bible says the Spirit will give you utterance. Just talk about the Lord. And let God do the work of conviction. We don't have to run around pointing at people saying, you're going to hell and judge them. And we don't, that, the church has gotten a bad reputation because of that. We also don't need to go to the other extreme and say, well, we're never going to talk about sin. Just speak the word. Just talk about Jesus. Talk about why Jesus came and let God do the work. It's interesting. Let me close with this. You've been patient. At the end of the passage, after the eunuch gets baptized and the spirit takes Philip away, I love the next phrase. It says, Philip found himself at Azotus. From Samaria to Gaza, he walked 40, 50, 60 miles maybe. Now, he's in the water one minute, and the next minute, he's 18 miles away. And look at what he does. He starts to preach the gospel again. 
Now, thankfully, the Lord doesn't usually work that way in our lives. I don't know how many of you have been times transported this week, but I haven't. Be fun, though, right? But I love the concept that the Lord puts us in the right place of ministry at the right time so we can help people to know the love of Christ. And we need to discern those opportunities and be ready and willing to act. And when we do, God will work. Let's pray together. I want to just give you a quick word as we close our eyes. Maybe this morning the Lord has impressed someone on your heart that you need to have a conversation with. I'm not saying you need to knock on the door this afternoon and pull out the four spiritual laws and explain it to them. I'm just saying there's somebody in your life that that you need to initiate the conversation with. Maybe they're hurting or maybe they're defiant or maybe, I I don't know what it is. We don't need to go through the list. but, But there's somebody around you that God's been saying, you need to talk to them. Maybe it's just to say, can I pray for you? They may look at you like you're weird. doesn't matter. Everybody wants prayer. I want to just encourage you right now as I'm talking, let the Holy Spirit put that name on your heart. This is an opportunity for us to stand up for the Lord and to talk about Him. Imagine next week if every one of us could say, I had a conversation and that person came to Christ. Hundreds of people this week could come to Christ if we just start talking. So as the Lord puts that name on your heart, I pray that you will begin to pray for them, that God will open the door of their heart. And that God will clearly lead you to the opportunity to seize that conversation. And where you feel insecure or you don't know what to say or what verses to quote, that the Holy Spirit will just give you the words. Father, you know the people around us that need to hear about you. And Lord, you've been prompting us to talk to them but for some reason we've been waiting. Lord, I pray this week and in the days ahead we'd be like Philip running up to the chariot. Lord, that you'd give us the right question to ask and then as we ask that question, the floodgates would open up and that person would begin to talk about their life and then we would be able to share the love of Christ. Lord, give us those opportunities this week and cause us not to flinch. We praise you for what you're doing in our midst We praise you for how you have changed lives. Lord, I look out in this congregation, I see lives that have been changed in the last two, three years in powerful ways. Continue to do that work in and through us, Lord. We praise you for what you're going to do in our ministry as we serve you and exalt you. We pray this in Jesus' name.